Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 45, Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. On the beaches of the Galapagos Islands is another thriving social scene of blue-footed boobies. Their blue feet are real eye candy to the ladies. Some simple steps are taken to score. Step one, show off your blue suede shoes. Step two, bow your head. Step three, you know, give her a gift. And then, maybe flash those blues again. If she's still not impressed, well, he kicks it up a notch. Okay. Now, that's more like it. She likes him enough to join in the dance. While they do form families, boobies are swingers. They may have several mates at a given time. Their eye wanders as soon as the other steps away. But no hard feelings here. This is all part of the mating game. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella. This episode, Tom and I are on an island. We are surrounded by furry-looking people with nubs for fingers. But this podcast that we're on this island with about is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And it is all about books literature plays and each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature and we determine whether it is worthy of its positive negative or neutral reputation and whether it is required reading so i am your <laughs> main, your captain this time and I don't even know. I guess the Mandarax to my <laughs> my human is is Tom. 
How are you? Yeah, this is a weird one to be like, hmm, the what to my what, so. Yeah. It's like, I could call him the Mary, but then she's doing some, like, artificial insemination without people's permission. Yeah. So maybe maybe he doesn't want to yeah. do that. Or at least without one person's permission. I don't know. That was a super weird mm -hmm. scene. Uh, yes. Hello. We are currently enjoying summer. And I will say, though, even though this will come out in August. Yes. August, right? yeah. That as we are recording this past weekend, we did lose uh, beloved congressman John Lewis. And I bring that up not only because he was a great man, but also because we actually did march. And so I, I just thought I would mention that uh, we lost a great historical and uh, civil rights figure yeah we did it was really really sad i know he had cancer anyway i think he had pancreatic cancer if i'm not mistaken but by all accounts i mean you know and we read the bio so you know we knew about his life at least in the civil rights movement but by all the accounts i was reading about who he was after the you know during the movement after the movement during his time in congress like everybody across the board well at least everybody who matters and isn't a racist had <laughs> wholly nice things to say about him and 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 his work whereas very often in these cases you get some sort of weird uh you know some people who are like you know yeah you're all praising this person but and you get some sort of long explanation of something where you know they i don't know didn't check every box that this person has in terms of what a good person is but i, I i'm not seeing that from anybody except for the occasional racist who tends to creep into a comment feed, but you know, it's what it is. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it was very, very sad, but it is, um, you know, just, I like the idea that we just need to keep fighting for positive change in society because it's what he would have, what he kept doing or what he would have wanted, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like he was, you know, an honest to, to God, good mm -hmm. man. You know, because you, you can even come up with things about Dr. Martin Luther King to, I think, have the, your example of what you were talking mm -hmm. about. But, yeah, I think Congressman uh, John Lewis. And one of my favorite images of John Lewis, which I posted on Instagram, is his mugshot, mm -hmm. which is probably, like, a really weird image. But I love it so much because he's got this little smirk <laughs> on the left-hand side of his face. And it's just like, yeah, he, he knew what he was doing. You know, it's not like he was up to no good. Like, when you go to college dorm rooms and people have a poster or version of Bob yeah. Dylan mugshot or Frank. You know, this guy was actually doing something good. He got arrested. And it's almost like... Yeah, I, I like this or kind of like a F you to, to, to the the white supremacist yeah. kind of thing. So that's my, my favorite. Yeah, uh, the, the other one that I, I thought was really uh, just touching was footage of him, pictures of him at, at the San Diego Comic-Con a number of years ago where he cosplayed it as a matter of sorts and he wore the trench coat that he had worn at the Selma March and then led like little kids at the con in a march around the the lobby. So that was really uh, it was just it was very cute to see, but at the same time it was just like again, you know, just another way like you know, just little things like that. Like you know, it just uh, shows him like what a what a very very decent person he was. Yet at the same time, wasn't just you know nice and genteel like really did believe in in 
I think he was the one who used uh, like to use the phrase "good trouble." You know, so yeah. so that was you know, and and I'm also reminded of the scene in March we talked about and laughed about where they're all standing in Doctor King's office, and King doesn't really want to get involved because he doesn't want to like you know have a record or whatever, and they're all looking at him. They're like, "We all have records," like you know, just yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I still laugh about that scene because it is a very funny. Yeah, I know. Scene. I should be the one to choose yeah. which cross yeah. I die, and I'm like, okay, Doctor yeah. King. Uh, yeah, which is pretty funny. The only sad, I mean, there are multiple sad things, but the the one sad thing that I think about, though, is just that, you know, there's this resurgence, it seems, this huge resurgence. I mean, racism is always there, but just that it's like, really, we've kind of hit this wall of racism and that he died with that. Mm. Hopefully there's hope that he saw hope there, just that there are so many people out there doing these these protests these peaceful protests for the most part so he saw that uh and there was potentially some hope but just you know he kind of wished that a figure like that who was fighting so hard could die and and we were in a better place as a nation than we are yeah it's it's very tragic in in this country that over the last few years the the, you know the the racism was always there but the the people who are its most vocal felt enabled and emboldened more than they had um, uh, and, and felt that they can do it front and center in a public arena as opposed to um, as opposed to you know not as not as much so because they feel that they embolden, they're 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 emboldened and encouraged to do it by those who, people who are in power so yeah well leon trout would probably say it was all because of our brains <laughs> that this is happening so uh, yeah, so we are going to. Uh, that was yeah, a nice segue there. Talk about some, thank you. We're going to talk about Galapagos, which you do have to specifically put in Galapagos, the book. Yeah. And it's interesting because on the cover it even says a novel, because otherwise you're just going to get a bunch of images of the Galapagos Islands, which I'm actually kind of interested in like visiting now that I've, I've seen all of this. This sounds interesting. But it is the 11th novel written by American author Kurt Vonnegut, and it actually questions the merit of the human brain from an evolutionary perspective, and the title itself is both a reference to islands on which part of the story plays out and a tribute to Charles Darwin on whose theory Vonnegut relies to reach his own conclusions, and it was first published in 1985. What was your <laughs> history with this book, which I feel like we're the same because I had never heard of it, or if you want your history with Vonnegut himself? This was the first time I'd heard of and read Vonnegut, this novel, so I think I'm in the same boat as, as you. And I will tell you that that pun was intended, but I did not. Um, did not intend <laughs> uh, with Vonnegut himself, I've read one of his novels as well as one of his short story collections. Um, I was introduced to him in high school uh, in my uh, creative writing class, I think it was. Uh, we read a couple of his short stories from the collection Welcome to the Monkey House. Uh, Harrison Bergeron, I remember, was one of them, and I've taught that one before. Uh, Long Walk to Forever is another one I remember really, really enjoying. Um, the Lie, I'm trying to think of other ones. I've read a number of them, but I read that collection, Welcome to the Monkey House, a couple of times now over the last 20, 25 years. And I was assigned and read Slaughterhouse Five in college. Now, that was t more than 20 years ago. I remember enjoying it at the time, although I didn't fully get it. 
to me, it's one of those that's kind of on my reread list, but it's not something that I would, I'm going to bring here. Um, only, only if you like nth level piss me off. So, which I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, so it's, it's, it's like a punishment book at this point from, from me. Oh dear! So if I give you a bad book, you're gonna bring it on in order to. But like it. it's it's like, but there's a difference. There's like you know, it, it's it's serious level punishment. It's not like you know mildly you know like it's not like you know you bring on a bad book and I'm gonna give you White Fang now or something. Um, you know another Jack London dog novel or something like that. Uh, yeah, this this will be like this will be like really really awful. So no, it's it's very unlikely that, that I'm gonna that, that I'm gonna bring it to the to the table here. But I, I do intend to read it again because I remember liking it. But that which is his most famous novel, I've heard really good things about Cat's Cradle because a couple of my students mm. read it for an independent novel option a few years ago at AP English, and the summary of it sounded really interesting. So I may check that one out. But beyond that, um, that this is about as much as I've read. Yeah, so the first Vonnegut I read was Slaughterhouse-Five, and it was just so bizarre, which I think it's intended to be, so <laughs> that's fine, but I did not like it. I mean, I made it through to the end, but I thought, please never make me read this ever again. I can cross it off my Rory Gilmore's <laughs> reading list. And then uh, there was one short story specifically that popped up in The Monkey House. I can't remember which one it was, but it involved a TV. People were watching lots of TV. There's some sort of game show, and there's a family, and one of the – I think the son of the family is, like, unintelligent. That's, that's Harrison Bergeron. Ah, okay. So that's the one I read from there, and I did enjoy that. But, you know, whenever I see – his name. I think of Slaughterhouse Five, and I just think it, it it might be tricky. Which I I should give him better credit because you know to spoil the end of this, I actually enjoyed this, and so it's not like actually when I see what's his name thinking he's a man, he's an alcoholic, he's a misogynist, he doesn't really have upper novels thinking thinking. Anyway. He killed himself. Thank you. <laughs> I'm giving all these clues. It was like we yeah, were but like playing. okay, alcoholic, okay. misogynist, male writer. All right, let's yeah. see. Uh, <laughs> well, we need to get a little more specific. Uh, oh boy, yeah. Uh, that'd be a fun game to play. Actually, what is that called when you can't? I mean, it's not sure. Like pyramid or like, password or something. Yeah, catchphrase. Yeah. yeah. But it's with authors, and you have to throw out all these things. Anyways, whenever I see Hemingway, Hemingway's name on my list, I'm like, oh, no. And it happens every time that I actually do not – I generally do not like him. So this was a nice surprise. So I apologize to Vonnegut, even though he has now passed away, that I gave him a bad rap because of Slaughterhouse-Five. But this was pretty good. So, yeah, that's my – so I'm with you with this particular book. It's the last one of his that was on my list. And it said 1986, and I thought, oh, that's a good year because I was born then. So why not? And uh, here we are. <laughs> so I have a brief biography of Vonnegut on the vonnegutlibrary.org site. So I thought I would do this. And this biography was written by William Rodney Allen. So I thought I would give him credit, obviously. And it looks like Vonnegut was actually born 
10 days before me, so that's exciting. So he was born November 11th, 1922. I mean, years earlier, but 10 days. In Indianapolis, Indiana, a city he would later use in his novels as a symbol of American values. Kurt Sr. was one of the most prominent architects in the city, and his wife Edith was the daughter of a wealthy Indianapolis brewer. Kurt Jr. was the youngest of their three children, along with middle child Alice and firstborn Bernard. The fortunes of the family changed dramatically during the Depression when Kurt Sr. saw his architectural business disappear. He had to sell the family home and take young Kurt out of private school, the Orchard School, where in kindergarten Kurt had met Jane Cox, who eventually became his wife. Oh, that's so sweet! Oh, kindergartners. Oh, man, my shipper heart is happy. This radical change in economic circumstances caused Kurt Sr. virtually to give up on life and Edith to become addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs. Kurt Jr.'s lifelong pessimism clearly had its roots in his parents' despairing response to being blindsided by the Depression. The Teen Years. At Shortridge High, Vonnegut wrote for the student paper The Echo, and he continued his interest in journalism at Cornell, <gasps> go Big Red, becoming managing editor of the student paper The Sun. Vonnegut would be influenced all his writing life by the simple rules of journalism. Get the facts right, compose straightforward declarative sentences, know the audience. Vonnegut studied chemistry at Cornell, but later confessed he was a, quote, lousy student. When World War II broke out, Vonnegut was 16. At 20, he entered the army and was shipped off to Europe, where he almost immediately was captured by the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge. He was sent as a POW to Dresden, on February 13, 1945, British and American bombers destroyed the city by dropping high explosives, followed by incendiary bombs. The resulting firestorm turned the non-militarized city into an inferno that killed up to 60,000 civilians. Vonnegut and his fellow POWs survived by accident only because they were housed some 60 feet underground in a former meat locker and slaughterhouse. Vonnegut's job for weeks after the bombing was to gather up and burn the remains of the dead. His experience at Dresden marked him for life and eventually resulted in his literary masterpiece, as this guy says, Slaughterhouse-Five. Yet another, another sorrow of the war years was his mother's suicide by drug overdose in 1944. After the war, Vonnegut married Jane Cox, and they had their first child, Mark. Vonnegut took an advertising job at General Electric to support his family and began writing short fiction on the side. Kurt and Jane had two more children, Edith and Nanette, and Vonnegut redoubled his efforts to publish his stories. In 1952, his dystopian apprentice novel, Player Piano, was published. Vonnegut's beloved sister, Alice Adams, died of cancer in 1957, just two days after her husband had been killed in a freak commuter train crash. Gosh, that sounds like the Green Mile. Kurt and Jane took in three of Alice's children, doubling the size of their family overnight. It became more imperative to, for Vonnegut to bring in more money. Within 10 years following the arrival of the Adams boys, the short story market was drying up and Vonnegut turned his attention to novels. He published the whimsical sci-fi epic The Sirens of Titan, the spy novel Mother Night, the fanciful anthropomorphic logical satire of religion cat's cradle a critique of economic injustice god bless you mr rosewater and in 1969 his dresden novel 
Slaughterhouse-Five. In these books, Vonnegut mastered his trademark black comic voice, making his audience laugh despite the horrors he described. He also developed a cult following of college students, but he broke through to a mass audience with Slaughterhouse-Five and the excellent film version of the novel that soon followed. By the early 1970s, Vonnegut was one of the most famous living writers on Earth. Yet the 1970s proved a difficult time for Vonnegut. After his children grew up and left home, his long marriage to Jane fell apart. He moved alone from Cape Cod to New York City, became withdrawn and depressed, and suffered from writer's block. His son Mark suffered a bipolar disorder breakdown early in the decade, but recovered to write a book about it called The Eden Express. Not surprisingly, the disintegration of families became a major theme in Vonnegut's two novels in the middle 1970s, Breakfast of Champions and Slapstick. While not altogether successful as fiction, these books helped Vonnegut work through the emotional problems that had plagued him since childhood. In the 1980s, Vonnegut entered a second major phase of his career. His 1979 marriage to photographer Jill Kremitz formalized a relationship of several years, and the social realist novels Jailbird, Dead Eye, Dick, and Bluebeard showed a remarkable resurgence of Vonnegut's career after the critical backlash he had suffered in the 1970s. And then, of course, Galapagos was a brilliant look at Vonnegut's concerns that the oversized human brain was ironically leading mankind to possible extinction. Vonnegut also published his third major collection of essays, Palm Sunday. And then finally, it says, speaking for our freedoms. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, Vonnegut acted as a powerful spokesman for the preservation of our constitutional freedoms, for nuclear arms control, and for the protection of the Earth's fragile biosphere. As the new century began, Vonnegut continued to try to be, as he said, a responsible elder in our society, decrying the militarization of our country after the terrorist attacks in 2001. In his last novel, Timequake, and his last collection of essays, A Man Without a Country, Vonnegut powerfully expressed his sense that corporate greed, overpopulation, and war would win out in the end over simple humanity. As he ruefully apologized to those who would come after him, we could have saved the world, but we were just too damned lazy. Vonnegut died on April 11, 2007, after a fall on the steps of his New York brownstone. He was mourned the world over as one of the great American writers of the second half of the 20th century. And that is a brief biography of Kurt Vonnegut. Anything to add before I go into the plot synopsis of Galapagos? No, not off the top of my head. That was pretty comprehensive. Well, let us now talk about Galapagos. And I'll start with Leon Trout, even though you don't, he's not named until, gosh, at least halfway. It could be longer, but we'll begin with him anyway. So Leon Trout has been a ghost for a million years. His unique position allows him to chronicle the survival and evolution of the human race. In 1986, a pandemic, what, causes all female humans to become infertile. And the species only survives because 10 people become stranded on one of the Galapagos Islands away from the disease. Mary Hepburn, a widowed biology teacher, artificially inseminates the fertile females with the sperm of her lover, former lover, Captain Adolf von Kleist. For a million years, the offspring of the colonists are the only human survivors on the planet, and they evolve to fit their environment with fur, flippers, and small brains for swimming and catching fish. Humanity has finally found paradise. As the novel begins, passengers are waiting at the Hotel El Dorado for, quote, the nature cruise of the century, a round trip to the Galapagos Islands from Ecuador on the new cruise ship 
Bahia de Darwin. The prospective passengers are James Waite, a con artist traveling under the name Willard Fleming, Mary Hepburn, a recently widowed former biology teacher, wealthy financier Andrew McIntosh and his blind daughter Selena, computer, did they skip the dog? They skipped the dog. But anyway, Selena has a dog. Computer genius Zenji Hiroguchi and his pregnant wife Hisako. The other passengers never make it to Ecuador, like Jackie Kennedy Onassis. The cruise is canceled due to a worldwide economic collapse. Zenji and Macintosh are both shot by a mentally imbalanced soldier who accidentally let six orphan native Concabono girls into the guarded hotel. Starving people storm the Hotel El Dorado and the cruise ship to loot whatever food and goods they have. The passengers and Concabona girls are let out in a bus driven by the hotel manager Siegfried von Kleist. During the escape, James Waite, a.k.a. Willard Fleming, has a heart attack. Uh, Siegfried tries to drive to the hospital, but a bomb hits the city. Peru is attacking Ecuador. The bus makes it to its way to the port where the Bahia de Darwin is docked. The passengers get aboard the ship, joining its captain, Adolf von Kleist, Siegfried's brother. Another bomb hits the bay, and the resulting tidal wave drowns Siegfried, who is already showing signs of a congenital mental illness. Adolf starts the ship, hoping to head for safer shores, but they are lost at sea. We should say that Adolf is completely incompetent as captain. James Walt slash Willard Fleming convinces Mary to marry him, with the captain presiding, and then he dies. Mary never knows that he was a con man, so she always tries to back him up and and be on his side if... uh, The captain never insults him. Finally, the ship runs aground at Santa Rosalia, the northernmost Galapagos island. At first, the passengers await rescue, but a disease has devastated the population of Earth by causing all women to be infertile. The people pair off into couples. Selena and Hisako become a couple and raise Hisako's baby girl, Akiko, who is born covered in fur. Adolf and Mary live together for 10 years until Adolf learns that Mary has, without his permission, used his sperm to impregnate the six Concabono girls. The resulting colony on Santa Rosalia is populated with the only surviving humans on the planet. A million years into the future, human beings have evolved into swimming mammals covered in fur with small brains and flippers instead of hands. The narrator, Leon Trout, is the ghost of a welder who has who was killed during the construction of the Bahia de Darwin. Instead of entering the afterlife, he's been stranded on Earth as a ghost because of his curiosity about the human condition. He portrays the evolved humans who don't use tools, build buildings, or have big dreams as a kind of paradise. All human violence and pollution is gone. Leon is waiting for the blue tunnel to appear again and lead him to the afterlife. There's nothing left about the human condition for him to explore, and he is now ready to go. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, well, Tom, did you enjoy Galapagos, a novel? I, I enjoyed it in that it was, um, it took a little while for it to kind of really engage me, but, or at least get going, but it eventually, like, I kind of settled in and, and enjoyed it. It's very odd, in a way. I guess my, my reaction is kind of mixed in that it was a good book and I enjoyed reading it, but I wasn't, like, blown away by it or anything like that. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I, I can't even come up with a comparison, but, you know, something that you would hold up, you'd be like, look at how amazing this I, I is. I kept comparing it to Station Eleven. 
And maybe that's an unfair oh, comparison. Okay. I mean, because I, I kept yeah. thinking about Station Eleven because of just the circumstances surrounding it, where you're getting like the beginning of a pandemic and, and glimpses at things yeah. that happen like later in the future, etc. And I found that like, like I still want that book sequel. You know, I still have to read the Glass Hotel, so I don't, you know. But uh, but I, I still want that book sequel. This was like I said, this it was it was good. I enjoyed it, but I, I think there might be better Vonnegut out there. Like. Or I would easily more recommend more easily recommend other Vonnegut novels before I recommended this one. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, Station Eleven, maybe Why the Last Man. I could kind of think of that, though. That's where all the men die, and it's just uh, women populated. Um, but, Children of know, Men, yeah. which I, I know is a oh, novel, but I've only yeah. seen the, um, the the film, film which yeah. is a really good film. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, highly recommend. Yeah, so I it was interesting because I wasn't sure what to expect. The only thing I read about was mm. the back, the back little blurb, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll just give this a chance and we'll put it on this podcast there. And then you begin, and you're like, oh, okay, okay, this is how it is, and it kind of takes you a little while to to get into what this is going to be like when you go in blind, which which uh, is interesting. It was weird. <laughs> There's some humor there, which we have to talk about as well. Uh, overall, though, I did enjoy it. And I would say, you know, that, yes, if if I'm going to recommend Vonnegut, I don't actually know what I would recommend. Um, but I could say, you know, for uh, an interesting read, I would read this. But I would say, yes, that I did like it. It just, uh, yeah, it was almost like, for me, the space one we read with the 42. This is our guy to go. Because, you know, I, I was going into that blind and I thought, whoa, okay, this is what's happening with this and the humor mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So the humor is similar to me. Yeah, yeah I can see. But, okay. So I'm going to start off with a genre question, which I just added this morning in case you don't have no, a don't. document. What genre would you consider this novel? <sighs> Where would it fall, do you think, in the in the library? I mean, is it just fiction? Do you think it has that science fiction? And science fiction keeps popping up in the sense of uh, Kilgore Trout, which I'll talk about next. Yeah. But is this science fiction because Darwin's so heavily involved? Is it just fiction? Is it, you know? What, I'm going to drop it into science fiction because it's because of its connection to, like, evolutionary biology because when we think science fiction and we think of like hard science fiction, we do often think about like technology and science fiction because of just all the the rockets and the and the AI and the um, and the other type of science fiction novels and movies that we're used to, right? You know, whiz bang future stuff, and then you know Blade Runner, like that sort of stuff. We're so used to t- science and technology and science fiction being tied close together, but I think on a very just literal level this is science fiction because it involves biology and evolution and other sciences beyond physics and technology which it does involve as well so i think i would put it in science fiction but i think it's a type of science fiction that people wouldn't expect yeah i agree with that you know i even now thinking about it i i do see a lot of connections i feel like with Hitchhiker's Guide. It's just the locations are different. Mm-hmm. So this one's more grounded, whereas that one's in space. But yeah, because Darwin is such a huge focal point, I think, of this novel and just evolution in general, to take that, you know, very literally of that is science. And then, of course, we have this this fictional reality yeah. that I would also put that in there. But yeah, I just felt like, and I don't know, I mean, it says F, you know, my li- I got it from the library. So it's in the fiction category. 
Um, so I don't know if it is better. I'm not going to go to the library and be like, ladies, <laughs> you need to switch this. I'm just saying, like, I, it's it's an interesting. I feel like it bends the genre to to a to a certain extent. Yeah. So speaking of science fiction, I want to talk about a character who's very minor. It's Kilgore mm-hmm. Trout, and this is Leon Trout's father. And I didn't even talk about him in the synopsis, but just to give you an idea. He pops up in Leon Trout's backstory, which you get a sense of who this guy is. And he is a science fiction writer who mostly has failed at it, though he seems to be a prolific science fiction writer. And you see him because he appears in this blue tunnel uh, to go to the afterlife. So it seems like, given one section of this novel, that Kilgore has appeared to his son on multiple occasions. And I guess it, it just kept increasing the time, like, just give me one day, just give me one month, just give me one year. Because Leon is really interested to see the human evolution and like how does this change and so the last time that or i should say the penultimate time that kilgore appears in the blue tunnel he says son next time it's uh it's gonna be a million years from now if you don't come with me now and uh leon almost goes into the blue tunnel but then he decides no he's more interested in in the outcome of the human race so a million years pass and then he's he's gonna go see his father again so what's funny about kilgore trout is that he appears throughout Vonnegut's writing so this guy just pops up everywhere and there's just an interesting backstory with him so I'm going to get into some more history here this was taken from Wikipedia but there's this author named Theodore Sturgeon and in 57 he moved to Massachusetts and there he befriended Vonnegut who was working as a salesman in a Saab dealership and they were both writing science fiction at the time and Vonnegut had already published Player Piano and Sturgeon had a more successful career, and I guess at the time he was the more most anthologized English language science fiction writer alive. So he would continue writing Sturgeon, but his pace dipped noticeably. And Kilgore, he first appeared in 1965, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. So the funny thing is, so Kilgore Trout is a transparent reference to this guy, Theodore, because Kilgore is replacing Theodore, but then, you know, Trout for Sturgeon. (laughs) But the characterization is a little less unflattering because both Sturgeon and Trout were financially unsuccessful and seemingly slipping into obscurity. So Vonnegut did not publicly state the connection, and Sturgeon didn't really encourage the comparison. But it was after Sturgeon's death in 85 that Vonnegut actually explicitly acknowledged that, yes, it is in fact Theodore Sturgeon. He says the impetus to create Kilgore Trout as a character was more or less invented by a friend of mine, Knox Berger, who was my editor in the early days. He did not suggest that I do this, but he said, you know, the problem with science fiction, it's much more fun to hear someone tell the story of the book than the, to read the story itself. And it's true. If you paraphrase a science fiction story, it comes out as a very elegant joke, and it's over in a minute or so. It's a tedious business to read all the surrounding material, so I started summarizing them, and I suppose I've now summarized 50 novels <laughs> I will never have to write, and spared people the reading of them. Yeah, so he he performs a variety of roles 
in the various works some of his characterizations change a bit but here he is and he's got a familial role to our our lead here do you feel like he i mean i don't even know what sort of question to ask but now that you know and you may have known this before you're a smarter man than i was it shocking to see that oh this character has popped up in other novels there's this connection to it do you think this creates a a world kind of like Stephen King seems to have a continuity within all his books does this create a bigger world for Vonnegut did Kilgore Trout play a significant role in this novel would you say so you could take this anywhere I just kind of want to talk about this very minor character I wonder if there's like King's novels have more of a continuity in some cases and then connective tissue or kind of connective reference points, like a loose connection in others, depending on like what the novel is, where it's taking place. Um, like, for instance, The Green Mile has nothing to do with anything else that he's written. Yet The Stand and It and Salem's Lot and the Dark Tower novels all have connective tissue and in some cases are directly connected to one another. This seems like more of that looser connective tissue where like Kilgore Trout is just kind of a recurring gag or recurring character. In some cases, it seems like he's more involved in the story than others. As I was reading it, um, you mentioned Leon, you mentioned the name Leon Trout. I was like, that name sounds familiar. Because cause I remember, and I was like, oh, yeah, Kilgore Trout from Slaughterhouse-Five. So I, I picked up on that as well. But I wasn't going back and looking for uh, the connection to Slaughterhouse-Five. The, the, yeah. the, it's a standalone book that, yeah, I guess it's part of the same world, but we don't need to, um, you know, it's kind of a cute little reference to drop, but I don't feel that I need to have read three different novels to figure out what's going on in here. So I say loose connective tissue rather than like continuity. Yeah. I I think it's fun. Yeah. I think it's fun when you have some, especially if it's a writer, like as their library mm-hmm. continues to grow and you've got someone that keeps popping up. I think that's just like a fun idea. Yeah. And, and it makes me think that, you know, Vonnegut had a fun time with that as well. And to, to hear that quote from him that he summarized 50 mm-hmm. different novels he never has to write, it, it gives me a sense of Vonnegut being a playful person, yeah. which which I think is fun. And what's interesting about Kilgore, uh, it says he's supposedly written over 117 novels and over 2,000 short stories. And some of them, the works have been used as filler material in porn graphic magazines mm. and you know no one knows who this guy is in in Galapagos and then in the most obscure ways his son finds somebody in Vietnam the Swedish doctor who's over there and he begins crying cuz he's like do you know Kilgore Trout and so it was it was a really yeah. interesting way for for him to come about because Leon and Kilgore seem they don't really have the best of Yeah they're kind of estranged uh, oh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting just because of how much Leon tries to, I don't know, not necessarily be like his father, though I guess in a sense he almost is. It's almost like the paternal gaze, like his life is defined by his father Uh because he joins the Marines because his father was there. You know, that's the one thing that that makes him cry, even though he was injured, is because his father was mentioned and and all these things. Uh, So, yeah, it's just interesting. And, and of course, his father is there at the tunnel, which you would expect there to be, like, a literal, you know, loved one there, even though they don't have the best of relationships. So I think there was a woman 
back there one of the times that was more uh, enticing because I think she was a mother mm. figure. But yeah, I just think it it's it was fun, mm. and I didn't catch it because I it's been so long since I've read Slaughterhouse yeah. Five. But then once I learned more about, it, I was like, oh man, this is yeah. so cool. So I did like that little detail, and I guess really his main purpose is to be in the. The tunnel. The tunnel is his main purpose, and of course, leaving his son stranded for a million years. So yeah. he does have a, a good. Yeah, I like the, the, the. You giggled the whole thing about science fiction stories being used for filler and pornographic magazines, but I think it's a meta commentary on science fiction in itself because I know that at least horror was the case in some, in some ways. And I remember this from On Writing by Stephen King where he talks about in the 70s and the late 60s, but especially the 70s, trying to get short stories published. And a lot of the magazines that were taking stories were trashy men magazines, porno mags. They were like men's magazines or whatever you wanted to call them with like names like Stud and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and um, because, you know, they, they needed the filler you know, they would pay. So, and, and things like science fiction and horror have always been considered a lesser than genre to a lot of people, especially literary, uh, literary minded people. Vonnegut's one of the few writers of, uh, of science fiction who kind of transcended the label Mm -hmm. across the arts and across media. It's considered it, it's considered by the more pretentious people to be less than anyway. I mean, look at the look at how few sci-fi horror fantasy movies have been best pictures as opposed to period dramas. You know, the only other the only other uh, genre that I can think of that gets less respect from, like, say, the Academy is like comedy. So it does kind of get um, kind of get pushed off into its own little area, and very often that's um, you know that's it's kind of like B-level writing, so to speak. And I'm not saying that is my opinion. I'm just saying that having, you know, been around enough people who are want to be capital W writers, they do look down their nose at things like science fiction and would have, especially back then. Has a science fiction novel ever won the Pulitzer, do you know? Kind of an obscure question. Uh, I could probably Google that. Why don't you go ahead and keep talking? Will do. Yeah, so we'll we'll think about that. Another character, well, another entity that is in this novel that is minor though pops up a lot, so I don't know if I should call it minor is Mandarax. And Mandarax is <laughs> it's like I don't know, a TI-85 calculator. No, it's it's some sort of device that basically can translate languages. And it also is able to house or store certain teachings. So it has quotes, which we'll talk about. That's a question that I have. And then it also can teach someone how to, I can't remember the specific name of it, but the art of arranging flowers. Mm -hmm. So it can teach them, which was a, a sticking point. But do you feel like Mandarax is a character or just a prop in this novel? Oh, that's a tough question. I want to say that he is a character, but not in the way, and 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 that he's. That's that is a tough question because it seems like Vonnegut's playing with a trope of an of an artificial intelligence in a science fiction novel, kind of like a Hal, 
9,000 and stuff, but Hal is, Hal is a villain in, um, or, or, or is a antagonistic character in 2001. Mandarax is not necessarily. And, um, so it's not that out of all. So maybe he's kind of undermining the trope, but at the same time, I don't know. I feel like he kind of is, but not in the way that mm-hmm. it's like the whole plot hinges on, on him no. or anything. So he's like a, but like a supporting character or something. Yeah, and he is. I don't. He he's it. I don't know. They. Yeah. I don't even know what sort of pronoun he is. It is also, I guess, related to not related. Let me think about this. It creates a relationship between several of the characters, like everyone, at least of the last people on the island, as well as even between Macintosh and uh, Hiroguchi. There we go. That it, it cre- So it almost brings these different people together that you wouldn't expect. And it comfort to certain people. Like Mary seems to really have comfort reading the out-of-context quotes that it has. And it is the reason why she died, too, because that she was going to go fish it out of the, the particular water area and then she got eaten by a shark so yeah it is i feel like it is more than a prop like it it does you know people are asking it questions it is able to create interactions between two people so it's it is it's a translator but it's just not an anthropomorphized translator it just happens to be a plastic translator and it could be seen as one of the reasons why – I guess it is really the reason why you had the Hiraguchis even connecting to the Macintoshes because uh, that was the reasons why, why they were over there because Macintosh had seen what Hiraguchi had done mm-hmm. with it. So it, it's a catalyst for certain events as well. So, yeah, I would say that it is a character if I were to put between those two. But it's kind of a weird question to ask. Is it a character or a prop? But it's kind of like Gotham City, you know. Is Gotham City a location? Is it just a location, or is it also a character? Kind of yeah, thing? yeah. And there, there are setting where setting becomes character. To uh, to answer your question from earlier, uh, just by a quick check of, of the Wikipedia for a list of Pulitzer Prize winners for fiction, the closest novel that I can find to science fiction, although some people might not say this is science fiction, is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Otherwise, oh. there really isn't any sci-fi, uh, fantasy, or horror on okay. this list. There have been, uh, just off the top of my head, I know there have been like Newberry and Caldecott Award winners, like which are children's and young, you know, there have been young adult winners, uh, you know, Yasa Award winners, and there's an entire brand. There's like it's the Hugo Awards, I think, or the Science Fiction um, Award, or mm. something like that. So, so there are, but but for the Pulitzer, at least. Um, and I don't know about the Nobel, but the, for the Pulitzer, I'd say the closest we've gotten is the room. Well, there you go. Uh, okay, so still in the theme of the Mandarax, mm. I want to talk about all these quotes that pop up. And even at the beginning of the novel, you have a quote which is mentioned earlier or later. Sorry, uh, the quote is by Anne Frank. It says, in spite of everything, I still believe people are really good at heart and this actually pops up which is really interesting because you think that this is a quote you know kind of one of those frontispiece quotes to start off your book but actually you're in the book right now yeah. because later on a conversation between Kilgore and Leon 
this is mentioned like it was back at the beginning and then it had been so long since i read it, i had to flip back and i was like oh okay that connection i see so ooh, how do i ask i don't even know what to ask but there are so many quotes that pop up either prompted by someone asking Mandrax or just they pop up. Why do you think Vonnegut uses these quotes? Why do you think he does this? Yeah, what is the purpose of having these literature quotes? Throughout time, I would say, uh, because the Bible is certainly mentioned Mm -hmm. in there. And then, I don't know, does it add comfort? Does it give comfort to the people? Is it really helpful? Why give this ability to Mandrax? Those will be, okay, there are my two questions. Why does Vonnegut do this, and then why give this ability to Mandarax? Those are my two questions. All right. So if Trout is narrating as somebody who's been around for a million years after 1986, I don't remember when the if he mentions when Mandarax finally dies as a piece of machinery. But it's I don't know. On some level, I'm like, is this Mandarax kind of and, and then him kind of preserving the big brains of the human race? Because I can't, I don't know how intelligent the evolved humans of a million years from now are. Yeah. Well, it didn't last that long. I think it lasted until the nineties uh-huh. when Mary okay. died. But I can't remember what year. Yeah. It was I just, it, 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 I just wonder. Like, so with Trout quoting it, because Trout quotes some things as well. And he quotes at the very end of the book Shakespeare's famous, uh, the beginning of Shakespeare, the famous Seven Ages of Man soliloquy or monologue from As You Like It. Uh, all the world is a stage, and all the men are. Women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, which could be self is probably being self-referential, you know, since he's talked about his own life, but it could also be a comment on humanity and that humanity has moved on to its next part in this play, you know, and that it has evolved beyond what it what it had done to the world, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in some cases he's offering commentary. Uh, in some cases, I wonder if, if there's a, if there's a mourning going on for what humanity loses in the, um, mm. in the evolution from, uh, from what they were a million years ago to what they are, you know, in, in the future. Uh, yeah. So I think it's, I think it, it's multiple, multiple purposes. Yeah. I, I find it funny that it says quoth, Mandarax, because I I think it starts to evolve from, you know, Mandarax said, or they saw, they read a Mandarax, to then all of a sudden Mandarax is in fact an entity. Yeah, and then I hear, and the funny thing is, when I see the phrase, when I see the word quoth, I automatically go to the Raven. There's no probably no connection to the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, but I always think of the of the phrase "quoth the Raven nevermore" because it's just that's just an ingrained piece of literature in my head. Gotcha. Looks like on page three hundred eight, uh, it was May 9th, two thousand sixteen, that Mandarax, gotcha. Mary, and even the captain all okay. died. So they, they were, were kind of some of the last you, ones too. Yeah, I th- I think you you brought up uh, a really smart point though in passing is that the Mandarax serves its purpose for as long as it is able to, but then as as the people begin evolving on Galapagos, their brains start shrinking. So really there is not much of a purpose for Mandrax and his quotes. So it's good for the people to look back and remind themselves. But after that, even if they were, I mean, they wouldn't be able to read it. What, what point would it have except for Leon? But I, I don't think he's 
uh, tangible in order. Yeah, he's essentially really a ghost. Say anything about it? Yeah. So he's the only one that that's really able to remember these things after a while, and and Mandrax has sort of fallen into obscurity, and he's obsolete. Yeah. Well, it also um, coincides but, with on three hundred nine and three ten, the ship falls into the ocean finally as well, which is one of their. Yeah. And not not that the ship was ever going to go sailing again, but it was one of the last tangible connections to the rest of the world. Yeah. At that point. And, and yeah, and I think you know, like the dog. I remember there's one section. The dog, of course, was killed earlier on once they arrived by the Concobono mm-hmm. girls, but. I think Leon had said, like, the only other purpose that this dog would have served, because it would not have been, it, there was no other breed with it to, to mate with, would just be, like, a, a fun story for Akiko to know about and, and learn and everything. So now it's just all, like, hearsay of this is how it used to be, and now it's not even that anymore because no one really remembers. But for Vonnegut, he is able to trace almost humanity through these quotes, because you have, I think, Socrates pops up yeah. there. Um, of course, you know, biblically, you know, the Bible, you, you can kind of say is like the beginning of time and it goes through everything. So you see the evolution of human thought and then you get to nothing uh, w- because the Mandarax is gone. And that's almost a sense of what these because these people are just even though they're humans they, you know, they're more like animalistic thought of like survival yeah. and the day to day. They're not really contemplating life or, or mm-hmm. anything like that. So. It's very interesting to see all of that. Uh, something, another question, sorry, I didn't put it on there. I thought of it this morning. Is the humor uh, involved with this? Do you think it fits? Does it fit the novel? Uh, do you feel like it's similar in in how it is written to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where, like, just these weird things happen or, you know, it's really Leon because he's our narrator yeah. who is putting this, this humorous there. Uh, yeah, does it fit i guess this genre and and the story itself. i think it fits within the novel um i'm trying to think of the more humorous things it didn't make me crack up the way that hitchhikers does though yeah. um so i wouldn't i think hitchhikers is funnier but in terms of the weirdness of this book the humor the type of wit and humor that he uses i think does fit yeah i think it's understated mm-hmm. i guess i would maybe the the there's a lot more subtlety because hitch yes because Hitchhiker was like really, it was really in your face. And to a point, I was a bit confused. I was like, what is happening? But then, you know. It's a, Hitchhiker's is a lot but, more absurd, too. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. But, you know, it's interesting because I even think about, this is page 120, when Adolf went on The Tonight Show. And he was considered like a really humorous person. Mm-hmm. So I'm like ready for this. And they give you the transcript of what happened there. I, I guess 121 is this thing about uh, Hitler here. Let's see here. Why have they, let's see, Carson uh, says, why have they stayed underwater so long? It's talking about subs, mm-hmm. subs. And the captain says, you will have to ask them about that. Ecuador is a democracy, you know. Even those of us in the Navy have very wide latitude in what we can or cannot do. Then Carson says, some people think Hitler might still be alive and living in South America. Do you think there's any chance of that? Captain says, I know there are persons in Ecuador who would love to have him for dinner. Carson says, 
Nazi sympathizers. Captain says, I don't know about that. It's possible, I suppose. Carson, if they would be glad to have Hitler for dinner, Captain, then they must be cannibals. I was thinking of the Congo Bonos. They are glad to have almost anybody for dinner. They are, what is the, yeah, so anyway. Oh, oh, I guess I should go on because it's actually pretty funny. Uh, They are, what is the English word? It's on the tip of my tongue. Carson says, I think I'll pass on this one. Captain, they are, they are, the Congo Bonos are. Carson, take your time. Captain, aha. Ah, they are apolitical. <laughs> That's the word. Apolitical is what the concubonas are. But, you know, you expect, like, something with Johnny Carson to be like, whoa, you know, a real laugher. But it's so subtle and, like, it's almost as if Adolf is actually a yeah. dud. But he, he comes out to be this, like, great personality. Even Mary thought he was hilarious. Uh, we find out when she was watching it. So, yeah, it's understated humor. I don't know if that goes to say something about the brains, the big brains, and and if Vonnegut is making some sort of statement about that. Because we know that the big brains get us in trouble is sort of Vonnegut's, I think, underlying theme. So I don't know if, like, that's all it is, is, like, just bad ideas and maybe it's bad humor as well that that the big brains are responsible for. But, yeah, it's an interesting hu- – I feel like if there was no humor in this novel that it would just be really mm-hmm. weird and almost – I guess, biological, just like you're reading some sort of weird historical textbook. I think without this this humor, it wouldn't have been as yeah. fun. Would you agree with that? It just would have had a completely different tone. And I, I agree uh, that, that it needs it needs its humor to be uh, to be more engaging and fun. And and it would have I think it also lowers some of the pretense as well. I think if it was just simply weird, whatever, it would have actually come off as a little pretentious. Mm, yeah. So I, we've mentioned the big brain a couple times, and Leon steps back several times. And if, if some sort of event happens and says, like, it's the big yeah. brain, you know, when there is the attack between or the war between Ecuador and Peru and creating these weapons, is the big brain, all of that stuff. Do you feel like it really is the, to blame the brain? Do we see morals and ethics? discuss throughout this but only through the brain and do you feel like there are any characters in this entire novel that are unambiguously moral i don't think anybody's unambiguously moral because even though mary does something very in 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 artificially inseminating etc in the for an act of the self-preservation of humanity which is a i guess a moral act in a sense because she's doing it for the greater good. She does it completely underhanded, you know? Because it's not like mm-hmm. she asks him to donate his sperm. She steals it, essentially. So, yeah, um, yeah I, don't, I don't know if anybody's unambiguously moral. And I think that, that maybe that's part of the argument that we do. We, we are capable of acting ethically and morally. But we cannot be completely moral. Or, or ethical and that we are all flawed, you know, and, and perhaps it is our brains that get us into trouble because we are mixing our animals, that we're mixing our survival instinct, we are mixing our self-interest with our concern for the greater good. So, uh, so maybe perhaps, perhaps it's a commentary on, on that. Do you think, like, even if we think about virtues, which I can't remember what the Socrates quote was, but it may not have been about virtues, do virtues all come from the head, do you think? See, I don't... The head in terms of logical thinking, I don't... 
I would necessarily not necessarily say yes, because I think there are virtues that come from a more emotional place, mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about virtues and vices that have to do with the way people feel, as opposed to some of the ones that are a little bit more, uh, more along the lines of like kind of logical, logical thinking. So I, I think, I don't think you can say it's completely, if you're saying from the head in terms of a, rational logical thing i think virtue yeah. i think virtues by and large do tend to be rational so mm-hmm. in that regard or by that definition yeah. i guess that yeah i just feel like holistically mm-hmm. or virtues sort of holistically involve all, all parts of the body to a certain yeah. extent and and i don't want to like say that the brain has nothing to do with it because I, I think that i'm not going to go to that extreme mm-hmm. but i almost feel like vonnegut and i realize that this is I don't. I guess it's somewhat a satire, but I feel like he does. You know, through that biography, it's clear that he has some. He wanted demilitarization. He wanted to clean up the earth. So I feel like there is some of his own commentary in this novel um, that we're also putting a lot of focus on the brain. And I feel like there's there's got to be more. You know, more than that. And it's interesting because I've been catching up on Westworld, mm-hmm. and this last particular episode I watched. Dolores was talking to somebody else and uh, who happens to be an Andrew. I don't know how to refer to it. just like Dolores. I'll say that and was saying, you know, don't be like them, i.e. humans. You know, we have and I can't remember the words she said, but basically like self-control, yeah. you know, is, is the difference b- between us and them. So I guess that's kind of what he's getting to. But I even think about, you know, uh, in the lunchroom, I'll talk about, you know, I might bring up some sort of controversial topic like with Bombshell and just getting to like back to the Me Too movement and why do men in power, like what is even going through their heads of, you know, I can reach out and touch you because you belong to me or just like all this, you know, I just don't see it happen with women very much. And so the answer from a mother, in fact, a mother who is a teacher said like, it's the brain, like it's the brain. And so it's just sad if that is true, you know, that we're just blaming, I guess how certain predatory males act on their brain uh, which i guess goes to the point of this but i just feel like there's got to be more we're not just brains on a yeah there's got to be more you know that we're missing yeah because i i don't it sounds really dismissive or too simple to say yeah it's the brain when you're you have it essentially taught either directly or indirectly that you're entitled to a woman in that regard right Mm -hmm. so you know because there are millions upon millions of men out there who never and i'm not trying to be hashtag not all men but um but because i (laughs) i because i you know i know that gets that gets pushed back when you say but look look because pointing out i think it's because if you try to point that out you get told that you're you're um, minimizing what these people did, but I'm just saying is that like you, these 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 men, especially white men, are taught their own sense of superiority and entitlement, either directly by their parents or just by the culture in which they um, in which they live or or grow up. So there, you know, and it gets to the age old debate of nature versus nurture and what you know what people are. But yeah, I, I don't think you can you know, maybe he is being satirical or whatever, but I don't think you can really um I think we can really, really be uh fully uh, 
married to this concept of like, oh, it's just it's it's all about what's in our head as opposed to the rest of us because there are yeah. there are yeah the brain secretes hormones and stuff, but like you know in that in a less literal sense, you have the heart, you have other parts of yourself that contribute to your emotions and your attitudes and your outlooks. And if mm-hmm. the brain was what we always relied on, and if we think the brain is of our logical center, etc., then we wouldn't have world leaders who make self-serving decisions when they know that they should maybe not get involved in a war because it's just not beneficial to the rest of you know humanity or society, yet they personally stand something to gain, politically, financially, whatever, from it and uh and go ahead and do it anyway you know like and that's Mm -hmm. that's not the brain that's maybe it's part of the brain but it's their heart it's their soul which is very self-serving so you know and it's probably a weak example on my part but i'm just trying to get at the you know get at that no yeah i I think it'd be a completely different tale also if you had you know a, a real character a real historical figure, I should say, as the ghost. Because I think, you know, if you had someone like Socrates or Plato or somebody like that, um, that would have, or Cicero, you know, focusing on virtues, then I think this would have turned into a completely different novel as well. Do you think this is not written, but I was just thinking about it as we've been going, the majority, so there's only one man on the island initially, one man and then multiple women. Do you think that it would have changed with how people interact and everything if there were more men, like if it was equal? Probably, because there would just be a different dynamic. So you have that dynamic come about and it might have been a lot more complicated. It would made for an interesting story. But I, I, I think that um, him choosing to have the one man there uh, simplified things enough that he could get things across the way he would. I think it would have made it a lot more messy. I don't know if it would have undermined everybody's survival or not, though. Yeah. It'd be interesting having you to explore. It's kind of like the Lord of the Flies question of what if there were girls on the plane with the boys when the plane went down. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's something to ponder. I wonder if it would have certainly made things more complicated. It may or may not have actually impeded humanity's survival. Yeah, I wonder if, because I was thinking about Lord of the Flies, if violence would have been entered in. Mm-hmm. Period, I suppose, because there's not really violence. And then more, you know, once there are males, just because you have sort of the alpha male mentality and who is the main one, where you just have this one guy. And the women, for the most part, get along. I mean, everyone's paired off the concabonos are just this tight unit, so they're off on their own clicking. Mary is kind of with the captain and then on her own, and then, of course, you have Selena and Hiroguchi's wife, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, But, yeah, there doesn't really seem to be any sort of conflict. But then later on, you've got – and this sounds very bad, like I'm going after the men. But later on, when you have the first child, the first male child, and he pairs off with Akiko – he also, even though I guess they're paired off, she probably thinks they're more paired off than he is. You know, he also runs around with the, the different yeah. Bono girls. Um, and there's some, you know, there, you can tell from Akiko that there's like some conflict with that as well. So it does seem like maybe without more men um, that they're able to get along uh, better. But at the same time, you need them <laughs> for yeah, biologically, you do purposes. need them at, the, at least at that point. Yeah. Do you think that monogamy gets bred out of humanity as a result of what happens on this island? 
Yeah. I think it does, yeah, because I think, you know, that's just one – I think that's like the generational gap of – you can tell. So Akiko, I think, was born into a world of understanding what that was because her mother, of course, was partnered up with Selena. But then the son of one of the Concobonos, like that was – I don't even know what their belief system is. They have their own belief system. And then, like, it was at the point that generation was anyone's going to – mate with anybody and he also Leon does blame like the 16 year old or I guess he said his 12 year old which was really mm. disturbing that just like their desires they'll just mate with anybody yeah. and that's what life is like now on Galapagos as well so I guess it's just male desire and I think it was even said of this you know the point of the male I guess or or their purpose in life is to spread their seed as, as much you know as much as possible that's like their evolutionary a purpose and so that that's just what is going to happen whereas i don't know about the blue-footed boobies (laughs) if they are um (laughs) you laugh um i don't know if they are you know mated for life because they have that weird little dance and they're together so there might be certain species but it seems like humans quote unquote yeah they don't have that monogamy anymore in their relationships Uh, I guess since I said humans, quote unquote, I'll ask the question of do you consider these people in on the Galapagos Islands uh, humans at all? I can't find my. Oh, here we go. Are the human beings Leon Trout describes a million years in the future truly human? What do you think? In our current context, they're they're beyond what is human because they have evolved beyond our current definition of humanity. But I think it's pretty egotistical of us to think that we are, like, the true human, like, that we can't evolve. You know, that, like, this is what truly human is and anything else after us would be something different. I think that's just hubris, honestly. So, so they're still human. They're just, they have just, they're just the next stage of human evolution in the same way that um, Neanderthal or, you know, Homo erectus or, or whatever it came before us as we refer to them as prehistoric man is still human. Yeah. It's interesting though, the way they're described, it makes you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. calling them human. I mean, even Akiko, I, I'm still trying to figure, you know, why did, why does she have fur exactly? Cause she's the, there's, you know, the first one. Isn't to... there something about radiation or something or am I misremembering? Oh, interesting. yeah. Am I misremembering? Um, Oh, you might be right that maybe she visited her. Husband yeah, there was something. Yeah, you uh, might be right about and because I, I remember because it is a mutation, and I can't remember if it was if if it's implied that it's a res- possibly a result of exposure to something like radiation. So yeah, but even then, it's it is the it is also but perhaps it is also evolution taking hold of humanity. If if we're using an evolution kind of, as an invisible hand type of force taking control of humanity and pushing it in the direction it needs to go through her birth. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that if they had gone on this nature cruise and then come back, that Akiko would have been an outcast. Mm -hmm. But on the island, that mutation, if we call it that, serves a great purpose. And then she's really the one who is able to, she's kind of like the, well, because you have Mother Eve, that, that, description or similarity or comparison has been made to Mary. So I don't know about um, what you would consider. (laughs) I don't know. But she 
because of that, she's able to to pass that off to other yeah. people, and then that's how the the human race endures. There's an irony. This just struck me. Um, so he talks often about the people who were supposed to be on the cruise but never made it, mainly because there was, you know, like you said, there's an economic collapse going on. There's a war, yeah. etc. So Jackie Onassis, who was still alive, she died in '94. 95 uh was still alive at the time and was one of the most high profile women women in american society if not the world the inclusion of rudolf nureyev was interesting to me but it, again this is written in 85 86 so vonnegut would not have known it but kind of an irony that came along later was that nureyev died of aids in about 9091 like right around the same time freddie mercury passed away but this is the mid 80s nobody would have known he had yeah. aids you know this is around the time rock hudson finally divulged that he had that he had aids and then died of aids so the idea it's just an ironic thing that nuria skipped the cruise because had he been on there and she tried to use him to reproduce it would have been um very fatal for for a lot of the species yeah absolutely yeah, so again, it totally something Vonnegut didn't know, but it was just uh, the time after this novel's publication yeah. that proved the inclusion of Nureyev on here as somebody who missed the boat to be kind of ironic. Yep. Let's talk about narrative structure okay. uh, and just the timeline that happened. So I would say, I mean, we could simply say that it jumps around, which mm-hmm. is true. I feel like there are three timelines going on. You've got the, the main one that is pushing forward from A to B, but then Leon will jump off of that timeline and talk about a particular character's past. And then he will also jump forward in time. So it's like all of this stuff that's happening. Uh, Why why do you think Vonnegut, I could say, or even just Leon Trout, jumps around in time and even space as he tells the story because he doesn't just stick with Ecuador and Galapagos. He does go to... Sweden, Mm -hmm. Switzerland, and um, other places as well. The flashbacks to different characters are common in a lot of literature anyway. You know, the, the idea, like we saw that in Station Eleven, where, you know, she was spending a lot of time in the future, but also was going back to times of the past among certain characters. There's a three part trilogy, uh, The Passage, the, The Twelve, and The City of Mirrors by Jonathan. Corbin? I can't remember his last. Cronin. Justin Cronin. Which is this, uh, it's about how humanity is, is essentially almost wiped out because of uh, a, a, a virus that turns them into like vampiric monsters. It's a really, really good set, the trilogy, but there are significant times when you have time jumps all the way to the future and then one part of the book, uh, the last book, spends an entire time in the past again. So that idea of jumping around in time for the purpose of characterization and plot is, is not something that um, is unique to Vonnegut. But Vonnegut does, at least if you, if you, I know you don't like Slaughterhouse-Five, but if you remember Slaughterhouse-Five, he's all over the place in the structure of that novel. It's Because I think the main character has become, quote, unstuck in time, so it serves the you know, the plot, he, he is a time traveler who is like, you know, literally all over the space and time continuum. So he, I think Vonnegut's just kind of going back to his old, old tricks here with the stuff in the million years. Um, you know, I think, I think he's just giving us a clue as to, you know, who Leon Trout is and what is, what he has seen over that time. And cluing us into how humanity will survive and yet won't. 
So kind of giving us a set. So that way we can have like a satisfying ending when he finally heads off into the blue tunnel, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how he does the future flashes because it happens rather early that he mentions something about Mary artificially inseminating, but you don't actually see that scene mm-hmm. until much later in the book. So he gives you little breadcrumbs, yeah. I guess enough to entice you or engage you that, oh, something happened yeah. there, but not enough for you to completely understand until you get there and it, it comes full picture, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. It it was. I mean, you've got to keep track though, because it's mm-hmm. not like we take a time time off and let's have this chapter devoted to yeah, that's touch. true. It's like these little breaks that it's just okay. Let me tell you about this time where Macintosh was in a restaurant and he came upon Jackie Kennedy Onassis and all of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, it's not fluid in how he jump- he really does it, jump. It's around. it's a bit stream of consciousness in that regard in, in yeah. on the part of Leon. Uh, as opposed to being a straight narrative like that, like you were describing. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, so I guess it is just how, you know, going back to that quote from Vonnegut of, you know, re of, of summarizing a story, I guess this is how someone would potentially tell a story. I mean, I think about it with this, uh, I had a, a student this past year, so a 13-year-old, who will go off on tangents because you, like, come up to a point and then, well, my reader doesn't know who this person is. Let me backtrack and tell you this story about mm-hmm. this person and then back to it. So it's kind of interesting. Not to, you know, slander or insult Vonnegut by comparing him to a <laughs> child, but it is, well, I guess it's really Leon, but uh, that's kind of how it Yeah, works yeah. Sure. Uh, what drives Mary, since we talked about her a bit in this artificial insemination, which what she does, I, I didn't really think that it could work that way, but I guess I'll, I'll allow her the, the benefit of the doubt. What drives her to artificially inseminate the Concobono women? Well, she's a widow. I don't think she could have children or she never had children. Yeah, they try yeah. to work. And... As a biology, she's a biology teacher, from what I remember as well. So perhaps the, the whatever calling or passion she had as a teacher, as a biology teacher, or as a you know wanting to be a biologist, perhaps. And I don't, you see, I don't mean I don't want to get on that whole thing. Oh, she's filling the void left by the fact that she couldn't have a child because it sounds sexist. But perhaps there's a little bit of that there as well, or, or perhaps. Perhaps this is she finds a sense of purpose in that Mm, she sees the handwriting on the wall because she has been teaching this for years. And now she's like, if I if I'm the one who recognizes this and nobody else seems to be doing it, then I've got to do it. Now, I don't know what drives her to do it in a fashion that is as underhanded as it is. (laughs) What do you think? Yeah, that's and and I think to myself because the Concobono women do not speak mm-hmm. English, and so I just wonder like what sort of gesticulations did Mary make in order to have them understand of you know what they're going to do? And we know that the Concobono women did not like the captain at all, so that's also interesting of like 
you know, how, how much detail did she yeah. give? I, yeah, I agree with that. I think the fact that she's a biology teacher, I think is huge. I, I, I don't know if it would have crossed any other person's mind because I don't think it crossed uh, Hiroguchi or Selena at all that, you know, this is clearly what we need to do. It had been 10 years. I think this started happening in 1996. So she's probably come to the realization of, well, I don't think rescue is going to happen. So what do we need to do here? And you also have such a focus from her in her classroom on mating you know the the blue-footed booty boobies and and all these other types of creatures so that was clearly something that uh she would she would do i think she also did some human health stuff i Mm -hmm. think something popped up yeah so so i think it was her almost drive as you know that was yeah that was her purpose right and and that's what she knew it was underhanded yeah so that's you know you would think that mary was like a generally a decent human being but uh she did take somebody's sperm without Mm -hmm. his permission which uh is is very interesting though he ended up i guess saving the human race unexpectedly but yeah very interesting Okay, I, I think, I mean, I'm kind of running to, to my end here because I feel like we've talked about a lot of uh, the things on here. But uh, comparing the society of 1986 to the society of a million years in the future, do you feel like the future, quote-unquote, Eden is actually better than human civilization in 1986? I don't know if it's better or not because they don't essentially leave the island. So Eden is a good comparison because, you know, there was a world beyond Eden, if we're thinking of the biblical story, and it wasn't until they ate from the the truth, the tree of the fruit of knowledge or whatever, um, and got cast out there that they, they had to see the bigger world. So they're kind of forced back into that naivete of, of, not knowing what the world is like beyond their own borders. So I wonder if somebody will, you know, venture out beyond the world um, a million years from 1986 and then try to see what's out there. If that virus is still there, if other groups of humanity have actually survived in different places too, you know, because the view that Trout has seems to be combined like, right to the Galapagos, so I don't know if he's I can't remember if he's actually gone exploring enough to know if there's other humans out there. So I don't know. It's it's just different. I don't know if it's better or, or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody asked me I think it was one of my former students when I went on a walk with her at one point, you know what do you consider civilized? Because I think this popped up. Like she said something. I was like, that's what you consider civilized? She's like, well what do you consider? And I feel like while this Future society is, it seems like people are getting along okay, they're living their lives, they've got the food, if they die it's for the benefit of another species, so it's, it's all working out. The negative part of it is that there's no culture, and that's how I kind of can consider what a civilization is, is just, you know, is there art? Are there writings? All of that stuff. So when Mandarax kicks the mm-hmm. bucket, it's like, whoa, man, what is there to yeah. show how far humankind has come in thought? So, I mean, if big brains are a bad 
a bad thing. Uh, they've also brought, I think, wonderful things as well, you know, with art and music and writings and things like that. So I feel like, yeah, it's hard to compare those two. I think it's pro, pro con mm -hmm. of, you know, there are some things that are great that we don't have now a million years in the future, but then I think we're missing out on a lot. But the other thing is, which uh, you said is that they don't even know that they're missing yeah. it. But it's almost like we're starting back at zero. It is. <laughs> you know, we're, we're back there and like, oh, no, what's going to happen? It feels like a bit of a reset. But yet at the same time, yeah. it seems like that's what nature wanted to happen. So. Yeah. Back to a time without original sin. I guess. I guess. Yeah. I mean. Which is interesting. Yeah. I guess my final question. I mean, I, I could have left that there. I, You know, I'm fine leaving it there. The only other one I would ask is luck and chance, but it's not as strong a question. Do you just want to end it with comparing? Yeah, because I think luck and chance also play a role in evolution anyway. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. there's a construct to it, but at the same time, you know, there's a randomness to it and that certain, you know, certain things end up happening and surviving and certain things don't, you know, there's a certain amount of luck, you know, I mean, adaptation yeah. Like for that, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the two instances I can think of off the top of my head would be that soldier who killed Macintosh and Hiroshi, yeah. but also opened the way into the hotel for the Concobonos. And without that way, the Concobono women wouldn't have been on the island. Uh, and then the other one was one of the fighter pilots thought that he was shooting a missile at the ship, but it was actually something else. And so he killed a bunch of people that had stolen items but not the ship itself so they would never have gotten to Galapagos so that sort of thing uh, yeah it's like that oh, there's like an old rhyme I don't know if it's if you call it a proverb whatever it's like for the want of a nail a king a horse was lost a king it's like it, it, it ends with yeah. a kingdom is lost all for the want of a nail um, so it's kind of like that that's just like it's you know it, and it, it's it's too simple it's too much of a simplification to say like you know the, the future of this entire situation depended on this one second this one moment and, you know, yep. like for instance, the does the downfall of the of the entire empire in the original Star Wars trilogy come down to the fact that that one guy aboard that star destroyer didn't shoot down the escape pod that R two D two and uh, and and computer yeah. went over Tatooine at the beginning of Star Wars? I mean, you know, it's it, 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 it's it's kind of a funny little thing to say. Uh, but the entire plot doesn't hinge on it. It's just like it's like yeah. It's just, yeah. But that but as that is the randomness and that is the chance of life, you know. So yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, I think that's all I okay. have for this one. Unless there's anything else you want to discuss. No, I think we I think we've covered it pretty well. Like I said, it's a it's a very like uh, it, it's it's subtle in its ways. It's got some really commentary on society and stuff like that. Um, it it could be worth a reread or an examination or like you know it, it it lends itself well to examinations of things because of its the way it's layered yeah absolutely well then we are just left with the big question of whether this is required reading or not maybe if i say no it's not because it's a bad novel I just, in the way I was saying at the beginning of our discussion, whether or not I liked it, I feel that there are like other books that I would put in front of somebody first and then this. So it's almost like it's a second tier of a requirement, so to speak. So it's up. So, you know, um, so I'm not, not, not a hundred percent. Yes, but not, not a definite now. I, yeah, I agree. I think 
I would. It would almost be a fun read for a biology yeah. class. Yeah. Uh, so you know, very specific subject and and to examine this I, I think would be interesting it was on my rory kilmore's reading list so rory thought it was a required reading but yeah for me even though i would recommend this over <laughs> over slaughterhouse five in my opinion mm-hmm. but yeah i i feel like maybe it's not if i think about all of the novels we've done like absolute required reading yep uh, now I guess we have some feedback. We do, and we have one piece of feedback. It is an email from Michael Bailey. It is about our episode about doubt, which I believe was episode 41. Seems yes, it was 41. He says, Stella and Tom. I see what he did there. I just <laughs> finished listening to your episode on the play Doubt had some thoughts about Father Flynn, specifically about whether or not I thought he was guilty and why he chose to leave after being threatened by Sister Aloysius. Do I think he's guilty? This one is hard for me because I have very specific and very powerful opinions on the sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic and why I did not experience abuse and why I had walked away from the Church by the time the allegations reached a boiling point in 2002 I felt like I had skin in the game. I have fond memories of my Catholic upbringing, and I know that they were part of what shaped the person I am today. So to learn that the church I grew up in had not only sex abuse of children in its past and present, but that abuse was systemic and barely anything was being done about it was a blow to me as a person. So do I want to think Flynn is guilty? The knee-jerk reaction is yes, But at the same time, with the evidence presented, I can believe that Flynn was just being nice to a kid that was being picked on, and he caught that kid drinking the communal wine, and everything can be explained rather innocently. Both explanations are plausible. That's what makes it hard. As to why he would leave if he wasn't guilty, well, it was 1964, so the cover-ups were still going on, but there is little information from the priests themselves about how the abuse was treated. While the church moved priests around and sent them to, quote, treatment centers, there was probably a stigma attached to that. Even the allegations can taint your career, so maybe Flynn just didn't want to deal with it and decided to move on rather than face any of that. That's my take at any rate. Thanks for the great shows. Hope you are both doing well. Regards, Michael Bailey. So what do you think about that? I mean, it's, I can't. I, I have to remember what conclusions we came to as to whether or not he's guilty. And if I'm trying to remember, I think we were kind of torn on it as well because it's not proven, which I guess is the point that he's making in the play. Yeah, especially so it seems like Flynn has some sort of history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what colors it because Aloysius – comes up with this lie that she's talked to other people and he once that happens he's like okay i'll leave so there's clearly something there because she says she has information that she doesn't actually have so i think that's what what colors it but yeah this particular one you do feel like he's just being nice to the kid and then of course you have the mother that is just like just let the kid be there you know what's it gonna what's the harm for a year however long it was going to go um so you do want it to be like he's just a nice guy yeah you know he has longer fingernails and all this stuff but that's through the lens of Aloysius so maybe it's her 
grievance or her biases that we're, we're seeing this guy through. But at the same time, you know, if, if he was guilty once, does that sort of transfer over? So it's it's really – it's rather complicated as that as that play is, which is why I love it for sure. Yeah, and I liked the way Mike phrased in, in the second or third paragraph of his, of his email – talking about how he had fond memories of his upbringing and then to see all of this come out because when we were when he and i were kids in the 80s this was not common knowledge the way it is today and he says they've used and, and to see it also there was in the past the president it was systemic and he said and barely anything was being done about it. it was a blow to me as a person i think it's something really really important to understand like when we start to look at the institutions and the systems that make up our 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 lives and our society and those of us who grew up you know with the privilege of not having to see the abuses within the systems and things like that when they're put to light it is tough on those of us to take that look to take that very very hard look at them because this was something that was comforting to us or was part of you know like you know it's all of a sudden like you know is everything i was raised with wrong so i'm glad he got to put it like that because there's a lot just you know religious and other societal institutions where like you know things come out and uh, you know about them or where we learn we learn the fuller history of them and now we're forced to person we have to we, we are we are personally processing like grief in a sense we're personally processing those yeah. feelings of trying to figure out okay like what is wrong and right about this? What, what, how should I feel about this? This is something, and in some of this, for some of us, it's been something that has been part of our lives since the beginning, whether you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know? So you can't, it's hard to change your opinion on something like that on a dime when, or overnight, when it's been so much of a part of you for so long. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So um, please uh, email in, again, this was, this is episode 44. Five, right so that was 41 so if you've got a if you've gone back and listened to older episodes we would love to hear from you yeah especially about jane Eyre. bring Ooh. it back and then we can <laughs> so i can talk about jane Eyre some more and bother yeah, we will not be talking about jane Eyre some more next issue unless somebody oh. unless somebody brings it up in an email and i can hear professor allen's keyboard <laughs> lacking away lacking away Oh my gosh! No, he's too busy reading Tessa D'Urbervilles again, yeah, which, probably waiting for us to bring that copy? on. Uh, I know, I know. Okay, well, now is the exciting time when we find out what we are going to be reading next. So, Tom, what is it? Uh, I've been reading a lot about power lately, about tyranny, about people who have ill-gotten power being tyrannical. <laughs> oh no! Uh oh. And I was thinking, you know, that, you know, that's, it's, it's right there in the press. So I think that we need to read uh-huh. something about somebody who gets power illegitimately and is uh-huh. a tyrant and needs to be taken down. Okay. So we're reading Macbeth. Okay. Okay. Well, it's up there. It's perhaps my number one or number two Shakespeare. So that's yeah, enjoyable. We're repeating an author, which we have not done very much of. I think this might be one of our first. Is that true? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I think when you switched, because you originally were going to do something that wasn't Prodigal. Story, yeah. And you told me, like, it's going to be a repeat of an Yeah, old. and it wasn't. So maybe that one was, yeah. So, I, yeah, I can't think of 
one that we've doubled yet, have Not we? Not that I can think of. If I go to, well, yeah, um, fascinating podcast here. I'm, I'm going, I'm going on to our page, and I'm just working. Thinking, well, since you brought it up, I thought, oh, yeah, I don't think, I don't we, think have. we have. I'm, I'm going back and I'm seeing the. Um, I know, I know. On our lists are multiple works by the same authors because we've, you know, well, because people like um, like William Shakespeare, for instance, have multiple yeah. works by the same. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, we did it. We did Julius Caesar. Yep. Yeah, no, we, we have not done another we work by any other author. Uh, where we're... So we're keeping a promise that we never yeah. made. So there you go. <laughs> Okie dokie. All right. Well, that'll be it for this episode. Um, so come back next time for Macbeth. And uh, as always, you know, send us feedback follow us on Twitter um, and like us, et cetera, et cetera. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And maybe rethink any plans of going on a nature cruise. Oh, any cruise at this point. Yikes. Yes. <laughs> very true. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.